Well, good morning. Good to see y'all. Uh, to remind you of the rules, you can get up and get coffee whenever you want to. There's no such thing as coming in late, so you can tell your friends that even if we're started, come in late. If you've got to get up and leave early, that's fine. There's a handout up front here. And at least for my class, everyone needs a Bible. So, uh, okay. Uh, prayer request. Uh, do we have any update on Vice Parks? Good, so she got better. Okay, and last week we remember the family of Virginia Monroe. Is there any other prayers? Um, my daughter's grandmother-in-law, um, who was vaccinated, by the way, has severe COVID pneumonia and was, in, was intubated yesterday. Her name is Diana Honerman. Well, it's always appropriate to start Sunday school with prayer. Let's pray. Father, we, we bless and praise your name because you have given us life and the opportunity to know you and to study your word and to come closer to you. We ask that you, you bless by sparks with healing and you bless Diana with healing from the COVID that she'll be able to be restored to her family. And we lift up the, the Monroe family as they mourn their loss. And we know there are other prayers on our hearts and our minds and people we know who need you intimately today and we ask that you bless them all with your presence and with coming to know you and we ask that you bless what we say today that what is true will be remembered what is not will be forgotten that you forgive us of our sins as we approach you at this time and we pray all this in jesus name amen okay well last week we talked about what prayer is and i asked the question what is prayer and if Jesus, since Jesus, not if, since Jesus is God, why did he need to pray? And so we tried to talk about that, what prayer really is. And I came to the conclusion, I hope you did too, but I came to the conclusion that the prayer is an active living conduit that draws us, that God gave us, that draws us closer to him and it attests to such things as the fact we have free will. Otherwise, why would he need to do that? Because God thinks, speaks, it's done. And he therefore restrained himself when he created the universe, he created us. And that is active living, just like active transport is in biology. You know, it takes energy to do it, and that's the Holy Spirit who is the conduit of prayer for us groans for us when we don't know what to say. And that this also attests to the humanity, the complete humanity of Jesus. Completely God, completely human, because Jesus needed to pray. And humans need to pray. So now we're going to go into the Lord's Prayer, as it said, or the Disciples' Prayer, some people say, but I think the Lord's Prayer is, is good. And we're going to start talking about that. I'm going to give you a little overview, and then I'm going to go into... Matthew 6, 9, 
and that's where we're going to stay today. Um, so while you're coming in, I played a couple of renditions of the Lord's Prayer, so, but that's too late now. So here we are. So um, this art is from the 16th to 17th century in Spain, and it was God the Father with the Holy Spirit. God Father with the Holy Spirit. So I like to throw the art. The one before was Rembrandt's uh, Old Man Praying, which was done later in his career. Last week I showed you the old woman praying by Rembrandt from 1630, and it was very much not complete as the expression and the, and the, all the features was in the later one of the man. But anyway, okay, that's just, that's free. That's, that's not part of this. Okay, so I like, I need to read, we're going to read today, so you got to be readers nice and loud, please, so we get on tape. I want one person to read Matthew 6, 9 through 13, and Luke 11, 2 through 4. Who's, your milk's got Matthew, and someone get, you have Luke. Okay, in the Luke. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of trial. So you notice there's a little bit of difference between Matthew and Luke and how they say the prayer. <coughs> how he says the prayer, which... Some, some critics say that means it's all made up or something's made up. And they say that maybe the Luke was first and the, and the Matthew was second. Well, okay, maybe. But there are some differences. Number one, Matthew says, our Father, and the, the Luke one says, Father. And then Matthew adds, thy will be done and deliver us from evil. Matthew talks about debts. Okay, Luke talks about sins and trespasses. But they're different context. If you look before the Matthew one, it's talking about hypocrites and Pharisees and people that are praying to be seen. <coughs> Excuse me. Or praying uh, repeated mantras or that type of thing. You know, prayer as kind of a perfunctory religious activity to promote your standing among people. Okay, while Luke... He uses the following context of the, the friend seeking bread at midnight because he has guests to come in. And he goes, disturbs the person who's all asleep. So I need some bread. Or the prayer of uh, the, the talking about the goodness of God the Father in granting petitions. So clearly there are different contexts in which the two prayers are, are given. And it makes perfect sense to me that Jesus would have taught different things at different times based upon who he was talking to. We all do that. So we have different records about that. There was a German Lutheran minister whose name was Wachim Jeremias. Doesn't sound German to me, but <laughs> he, was, he lived in uh, the 20th century, about 1900 to 1972, I think. 
He was very instrumental in establishing the historical contextual criticism, not, not being critical, but a way of looking at scripture. And he, spent, he has a, a book on the Lord's Prayer, which I actually downloaded much of it. And it's really interesting to look at how he does this. But he said that the Matthew one was addressed to people who had learned to pray in childhood, but whose prayer stands in danger of becoming routine. Well, I said about Luke, it was addressed to people who must, for the first time, learn to pray. They were the new disciples who said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Okay, now it was very common for the, the students, the disciples, to ask their rabbi master, teach us how you pray. This is very, very Jewish. Exactly what you would do. So, when we look at the differences, yes, it may well be that Matthew's prayer was in a more established type of context where people were establishing how they would do prayer as a group because it's a bit more developed than Luke. But that doesn't mean that, you know, there are... are uh, contradictions in having the two prayers this way. Look at the context. So, okay, let's go, let's go forward now. That's all I'm going to say about the overview of the prayer. For the rest of you, you can talk to Paul, who's teaching next week. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, the Catholics say there's five or six petitions. Others say there's seven petitions, and that's usually what you say, seven petitions. But I wonder if maybe there are eight petitions. I mean, I just want, I'm just throwing this out to wonder about it. Because it starts off, our Father who art in heaven. And let's think about that. Petition to be able to address, talk with God. That might be a petition. Maybe. I mean, I didn't see any commentators who would say anything about it. And we have some very learned people in the audience. They may say different things. But I suspect that might be a petition. Our Father who art in heaven, maybe a petition saying, God, I wish to talk with you. I petition an audience with you. Okay. So we're going to do readings. I hope you're ready. I gave you the sheets so you know the verses. So, Father God, our Father. Let's look at the Old Testament versus the New Testament forms of this. Who has Isaiah? You have Isaiah? So notice this, this, this is common in the Old Testament, this is common in other Jewish writings. It wasn't, Daddy, we want to come by and see you. 
there was a very formal type of relationship. Father of Abraham, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was very formal, very patriarch type patron in Spanish, I guess, idea about God's up there, we're down here, and it's a formal relationship. And that is very common in the Old Testament and Jewish writings. Very formal. Okay? He's the patriarch. He's the godfather, the original godfather, before Marlon Brando. Okay? So what about Mark? Who has Mark? Milt, you're the good reader today. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So my 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 translation has the Aramaic there. It says Abba. Abba Father. Now Abba is the diminutive of Ab. Ab is Patron, Patriarch, Big Cheese. Abba is Daddy. So imagine this, praying to God the Father, saying, Daddy, and that is what happens at the New Testament. That's what Jesus tells us. What does that mean? It means there's a different relationship revealed, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Informal, more intimate. That's what Jesus reveals. Remember, Jesus is God's image to us in flesh. Hebrews tells us about that. The very image of God expressed to us so we know who God the Father is because we know the Son. Okay. There's something different also in our, your, or my. So we have another couple or three readings to look at that. So who likes to read Chronicles? You got it. So our use is used, but it's used in a formal way. But it's all of our, all of our being underneath God the Father. So there's an hour there in the Old Testament, although it's still very formal. But notice something that happens in the New Testament. So let's look at John 20, 16 and 17. Father, 
You know something interesting in that? There's a my and a your, but what word is omitted? Our. Our. Jesus never said to his disciples, we'll pray to our Father. That is an interesting concept, isn't it? Let's look one more time and see the intimacy of this in Matthew 26. One-liner. Who's got that? Anybody? It's a one-liner. I can take it. He went away a second time and prayed. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. So we see that, that there's this distinction about my and our and your. Your is really the Old Testament concept. That is your God, and I'm being benefited from your God in the Old Testament. That's a very common thing. It was, it was, you see it in prophets and some of the priests writing saying about my. But again, Father was the big cheese. Okay, the CEO. The head honcho, the Pope, except this far, but you know, those are all understatements and it's hyperbole on purpose. But that's how it was looked at, and then we get our, the transition, but the transition has to be looked at a little bit differently in the New Testament because Jesus said, My Abba. So, there's pater, which is the Greek. There's ab, which is the Hebrew. And there's abba, which is the daddy Hebrew. So let's look at this briefly so we can understand more about Isaiah 64, Matthew 7, and Romans 8. We'll, we'll not read the Galatians 4, which says a similar thing to the Romans. Isaiah. Who likes to read Isaiah? I've got to have some readers. Isaiah. 64 going once. Okay. Isaiah 64, verse 7. And not through 9. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that setteth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquity. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father. We are the clay. And apparently the Septuagint translates the Father to Pater. Septuagint translated Hebrew into Greek. Okay, beginning of the first century B.C. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Okay. So watching Jeremiah's would aver that, that the translation of Father there was really from the Aramaic Abba. So, and, and he, he does, to, as, a, as a sidestep, 
he does a translation of the, of the Greek into, back into Aramaic of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. And when he does that, the Aramaic has the same rhythm as the Psalms. And Abba give, contributes to that rhythm. That's why he thinks that Abba is the word used for Father there, because rhythmically, and Hebrews is a rhythmic singing language, okay? That's why when you see people at the Welling Wall reciting there, they're keeping time, okay? It's rhythm. So, okay, what about Romans? You got it. So, if Jeremiah is correct, and I think there's reasonable to say he's correct, what is really being said here in the Lord's Prayer? Well, Romans tells us something really important, doesn't it? Abba, Father who art in heaven, because we are adopted into the family of God. We are adopted children of God who are then actually told to call on God as Abba. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, we're different from the begotten Son. And I think that is why we, Jesus says, my Father and your Father. But he teaches us to say as a group, our Father. We're not adopted just, just as an isolated individual. We come to Christ as an individual, yes. We each have to make a decision. But we go down the road of sanctification together. It's a miracle of God because we're all at different stages in our walk. But somehow we're walking together. How did that happen? I don't know. God knows because God does it. And that's why we are called to say not my father, or just plain father, but our father who art in heaven. Because we're corporate. We do this together. We can't live the Christian life alone. And you get that out of the first two words in this prayer. It's incredible. So what about who art in heaven? Any, any comments about this? Questions, rebuttals, retorts, coffee breaks? Okay. Okay. So let's go to who art in heaven. What are we talking about here? What about Psalm? Psalm 115, 1 through 3. Okay. Okay. Where is their God? Our God is in heaven. 
So we know that, that the Hebrew thought was, God is in heaven. Well, what, is, what do we mean by that? I mean, where's that? So I have a question. Yes. He had his mercy seat there in the Holy of Holies. So they wanted to think that God resided there, but God said he would meet us there at the mercy seat. But also there's other parts to say that heaven is his throne and the temple is his footstool. So that was that's Old Testament theology. So they thought that because God met people at the temple in the, the mercy seat at the ark, that meant that the temple was an omelet that, uh, that, that protected people. That's why they said, by the temple, by the temple. But well, God's never going to destroy His temple. We got the temple, therefore we're safe. We can do what we want to because we have the temple. So it's, it's the same, same uh, issue as with grace. Well, you got grace, so you can do what you want to. No, <laughs> that's not what it means. But that's what they were talking about there, I think. Okay. So Psalm 115 tells us, what about 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4? You're going to have to look at your paper to know which ones, because I'm, I'm not putting them up on the screen first. Who has 2 Corinthians? Anyone? Okay, so here we have Paul talking about something, and we, we speculate that this is Paul when he got stoned or something happened to him, and he kind of died and came back. I mean, that's one of the speculations about this. But notice he talks about three heavens. Now, a Greek idea was three heavens. Okay, you have the sky, you have outer space, and then you have whatever else is there where God lives. So the Greeks had this kind of idea, too. So there, there is this, our difficulty is trying to express the inexpressible. That's why we have a foggy idea about what's going on. How can you express the inexpressible? How can you scrute the inscrutable? I mean, okay. So there's this idea about the third heaven being whatever that is, that's where God is. God's throne room. And so Paul talks about that, but it's an idea that Paul was educated in, in the Greek philosophy too. And so he had that idea and it translated, he translated that into what he wrote here. So there's this idea that God is someplace else outside of our atmosphere and outside of outer space. And I think that is pretty good way to try to understand something that we don't understand. So where is heaven? Well, it's where God is, isn't it? 
The third heaven is a paradise to us. And we tend to interchange paradise and heaven. But actually, paradise has different meanings. Paradise really brings up in the Jewish mind the concept of the Garden of Eden. Okay, it's a place where it's all lush and everything is good and you're not going to get sunburned if you go outside without any clothes on and you're going to have plenty of fruit to eat and fresh water and, you know, the cobra's not going to strike you and all that type of thing. Paradise is that type of place where you are, which is great. While heaven, really, if you think about what we think about heaven, heaven is where God the Father is. It's His throne room. It's the presence of God. A little bit different. I mean, that doesn't mean that God is not in paradise, but the concept is different. Heaven is what we want. Now, it is achieved by works, but it's achieved by the works of Jesus Christ on the cross, not by anything we can do. In the Jewish mind, though, paradise was guaranteed. Go ahead. You give me a witness, sister. That's, I'll take it. The Jews thought that paradise was something to be lost, that they had a guaranteed, that if they weren't good Jews, that they weren't Jewish in what they did, then they would lose paradise. Okay? Difference of approach. Isaiah 66. So that tells us that God is bigger than anything that we can imagine. And in fact, it kind of tells us that He's everywhere. When you say He's in the third heaven, He's on the earth, He's everywhere. He's bigger than all this. We can't imagine it. So He's greater than any location. Isaiah 57. So where is God? He's far, he's near. But what really does this tell us about? God is really in here, isn't he? He's with the lowly. He's up there. He's everywhere. He's with you. He's with me. What? God, the creator of the universe, is with you and with me? Yes. So our Father... Who art in heaven, we petition you to have communication with you. And we have it not because we have anything that brings us to being worthy of it, but you are here and you have allowed it. In fact, you have invited it. 
So why this identifying phrase? Uh, Adam Clark, I think it was at the turn of the 18th century, the no, 17th century. Excuse me, the, the mold got me. <coughs> so we see that this phrase shows his omnipresence, his majesty, his dominion, his power, his might, and his purity and holiness. I don't know why he repeated omnipresence twice, but I just copied that down from what he wrote. So, you know, that's what this is telling us about. It has given us context. It's a petition to be heard, I think. I can be wrong. But it's certainly given us context. With whom are we conversing? To whom are we praying? So what do we learn from this opening entreaty? Okay, can we do Matthew 23? So we have one Father in heaven. Doesn't mean we don't have earthly fathers. I mean, okay, no. There's biologic truth, and the Bible doesn't contradict that. But we have one father, spiritual father, who's in heaven, and one teacher about who our father is and what we're supposed to do here, and that's Christ. So that's what this opening segment really talks about. Your relationship with the father that you're taught by Christ. Who gave the Lord's Prayer? Jesus. That's always the right answer in church. Okay. So, here's what Calvin says. When the scripture says that, the God, that God is in heaven, the meaning is that all things are subject to His dominion, that the world and everything in it is held in His hand, that His power is everywhere diffused, and that all things are arranged by His providence. And that is what you're saying when you said, Our Father who art in heaven. You're acknowledging that. That intimate relationship and His dominion and providence over your life and my life as we do it together. Okay. Hallowed be thy name. Now, yes. That may well be. I I'm feeling quite a difference between those two words. Yeah. And I'm curious why it seems I don't know bouncing back and forth from one version to another, or because I'm not able to look up different versions right now and I will later. I think that's an interesting point. I did not really research that particular point. 
It may well be that the King James was written in a more formal tone, and which art in heaven is a much more formal. Remember, King James was authorized by King James. <laughs> and it's a beautiful, uh, beautifully written Bible, meant to be read aloud, but it may be that it was a more formal tone, while the newer translations say who. But I, Ron, you got any idea of that, Paul? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Thank you. So let's get to the last part. We have, I'm still on time, <laughs> which is amazing. Usually I, I run over. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And up here we have the Tetragrammaton. Now, Hebrew, you read right to left. Yah, a yod, Yah, he. But of course, that doesn't have any marks for the, for the uh, vowels. Modern Hebrew has marks underneath dots and tittles and stuff like that, which tell you the vowels. That one does not have any markings for the vowels, so we're, it's unpronounceable. We don't know what the true pronunciation is. But let's look at God's name. Hallowed be thy name. God's name, the Old Testament, and we're going to look at the New Testament. We have three readings here, so I need readers. I need an Exodus reader. Who likes to read Exodus? Who wants to bring us out? Ron, you can bring us out. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, and brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Do not make for yourself a carved image or likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, but I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children. And Leviticus 22. Okay. Do not profane my holy name. I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I am the Lord who makes you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So hallowed is kind of an, an old form, an archaic form for sanctified, to make holy. So I have a question. Is God's name hallowed because we hallow it? No, we, we don't make God's name holy. God's name is holy. God is whether we believe in Him or not. His existence does not depend upon our belief. This is not like the Peter Pan musical where you have to clap your hands to get Tinkerbell to be alive. You might remember that. Mary Martin, 
Okay, never mind. <coughs> I, I do throw these in every once in a while, but okay. Most to see if you're awake. God is holy whether we regard Him as holy or not, whether we do what we are called to do to sanctify His name, to give Him praise and glory. So it's not us who hallowed His name, but this is really for us to be turned to doing what would be sanctifying or praising or glorifying God for His name. And we learn that God has given us commandments about that. And we're not to profane it. His name is already holy before we do anything. Yes? Shakes them up. I'm sure it does. Come back to me, research this and come back to me and tell me that's wrong. They never show In fact, Orthodox Jews today won't write God in English. G. They either do G with a dash or G dash D. But they won't write the name because it's holy and not approachable, except Jesus says. Abba, Father. So he is holy and he is approachable. Wow. Okay, what about in the New Testament? Now, this is a revelation thing. It's not revelations. You can tell Bob Fuller I said revelation. I need a revelation reader about... You got it. So here we have it, even in the time that's in Revelation, the New Testament time and beyond, holy, holy, holy. Now, that is a typical Hebrew superlative. It's not just holy. It's not better holy. It is holy, 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 the most holy. 
We would say holiest, but that doesn't really capture the scope of how holy the Lord God, the Father is. I think it's beautiful how the Hebrews do holy, holy, holy. That's the importance of it. Think about the importance of that in the scriptures. Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? How many times did he say this? He asked this question. There are different words for love he used, but three times. And then he said, to feed my sheep, feed my lambs, shepherd my lambs. He said that three times. So that's really important. It's a superlative. So, again, I went to Calvin. To sanctify the name of God means nothing else than to give unto the Lord the glory due to, unto His name. It's not that we make Him glorious by giving Him glory. He's already glorious, and we are recognizing that. It's the glory due to His name, so that men may never think or speak of Him, but with the deepest holy, holy, holy veneration. Hallowed be thy name. Incidentally, I threw up a second Hebrew word. That's the word Judah. And you notice it looks a lot like the word we pronounce as Yahweh. And in here is the, something called a, a, a figure called the Delet. And that means door by itself. And so, this one right here. Right in the middle of the Yahweh word, the door to God. I just that's a, that, I throw that in for free, okay? I mean, Messianic Jews, uh, Messianic rabbis, really spend a lot of time talking about this type of stuff. But you know, there's nothing by accident in the Scripture. Even the word Judah expresses the door to God. And what was Judah? Well, Judah produced the lion of Israel. The lion of Judah, the door to God. Who's the door to God? Okay. The answer is always Jesus. We already decided the church answer was always Jesus. Okay. So I need a couple of... Zechariah 14. Just a few more and you got rid of me. I only have seven more minutes. I have to get out. Zechariah 14, go. So, hallowed be thy name really talks about the preeminence of the name. Now, this is talking, Zechariah talking about the day of the Lord. That's when God's judgment is going to be executed. He's going to complete the, whatever he's doing with the universe and the world. But when we, when we say the name, when we take the name of God, take the name of Jesus, 
we are taking on the entire context of that name. That means the same thing as being an ambassador who is not going to go out and, well, okay, maybe, maybe this is not currently true, but the ambassador does not go out and be their own ambassador to a different country. They go out and represent their country and the leader of that country. When we go out and say we're a Christian, we're taking the name that's to be hallowed of Jesus Christ onto ourselves with all of the accoutrements of that, all the coverings of that, all the robes of that, all the meaning of that, and we are bearing forth the name. When God sends forth His name, He sends it forth to people. He doesn't send it to chihuahuas. He doesn't send it to a tree that you go hug. He sends it to people who are to bear His hallowed, His holy name. Hallowed be thy name. How do we hallow the name? By bearing it and praising Him. You praise Him. You bear His name with honor and dignity. So, Psalm 111, we're getting close to the end. He is a psalmist. So the psalm reveals something. Hallowing His name is not just something you say. It's not just part of a worship service. It's something of who you are trying to become for His glory. And God has purpose. It has benefit to us. Why? Because He loves us. Nothing he does, nothing he is, nothing he interacts in the world is without love. So there's great benefit that we get from, we learn that in Psalm 111, from hallowing his name. Look at all the things that he does. Makes his wonders remembered, his righteousness endures. He has splendor and majesty. He gives us memory of his covenant. He works in our lives truth and justice. He helps us to perform in uprightness. We get wisdom and understanding. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's a petition, God, 
we together desire to be in your presence so that your name is hallowed through us, that we are made holy in your name to carry your name. That's what we have in one verse, the first verse of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. So how do we sum it up? Well, I think Ecclesiastes 5, 1, and 2 really tell us something about this. <laughs> so this is Solomon writing. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. And draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your, let my words be few. Any final comments? Let's close with a prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name that in that way we come before you and you bring us before you and you sanctify us. You make us joyous and desiring of your presence so that our lives and the lives of those around us are also touched by your holiness and by your love. We ask that all the things that we do be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.